0: Hello and welcome to The Blockchain and Us, where pioneers and thought leaders talk about their journey in blockchain technology, crypto assets, and the token economy. And I'm your host, Manuel Staggers. This episode has support from no official sponsor, but from my very own The Blockchain and Us newsletter. Get an email from me every two weeks with a very short summary of new podcast episodes so you can immediately pick those interviews you'd like to listen to. To stay up to date, just visit www.theblockchainandus.com and sign up today. My guest today is Seyfedin Amus. Saif is an academic economist living and teaching in Beirut as an assistant professor of economics at the Lebanese American University. He was previously a member of the Center for Capitalism and Society and holds a PhD in Sustainable Development from Columbia University in New York. Saif's main interest is Austrian economics and Bitcoin, and he wrote the book The Bitcoin Standard, published by Wiley. And now, to the interview. Hi, Saif. Many thanks for taking time today.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Manuel. It's a pleasure.
0: Saif, I've recently seen you present your new book, The Bitcoin Standard. And in a nutshell, what's the book about?
1: The book describes uh, Bitcoin as the latest and most advanced technology for performing the function of money that we as humans have invented. Specifically how what we see right now is that Bitcoin is developing into something similar to the gold standard, but the internet's equivalent of the gold standard, whereby Bitcoin transactions are becoming extremely valuable transactions, and Bitcoin scaling is happening on the second layer, or on second layer solutions through uh, uh, exchanges and websites that use Bitcoin, beginning to uh, process more and more of their own transactions on their own servers, rather than uh, putting them on the Bitcoin blockchain. So what we're seeing is that we The internet has developed its own central bank. And uh, it's an alternative because it, uh, it, it's a viable alternative, it seems, because it's, it can't be killed so far, at least it seems. And it works very well. It hasn't recorded a single uh, failed or fraudulent transaction in nine years. Mm-hmm. And um, it's uh, decentralized. Nobody can control it. And most importantly for me, most interesting to me as an economist, is the fact that it has hard money. The money that it uses is the hardest money that we have after invented.
0: What's that mean, hard money?
1: Yes, that's, a, that's really maybe one of the most important uh, concepts around which my uh, book is built. And the distinction here is between money that is hard to make or money that is easy to make. So easy money is money that is uh, easy to increase the supply of. Um, So for instance, if people choose copper or nickel or zinc or any of these metals as money, it's quite easy for nickel and zinc and copper miners to increase the production of these things uh, very substantially, bringing the quantity on the market up drastically and bringing the price down so that anybody who used that easy money as a store of value ends up losing value. Mm -hmm. So historically, we've always seen that uh, hard money – kills easy money. We see this over and over again. And we see as the world began more and more connected towards the end of the 19th century, the entire world was on a gold standard because gold is the hardest money that we have ever had or had ever had before Bitcoin came around. So by the end of the 19th century, all of the world more or less was on uh, a gold standard. Everybody had used gold as money. Before that, many people had used all sorts of different things. But there's a reason that all of these things lost their monetary role and only gold remained. And that is because gold supply is the hardest to increase. Gold mm-hmm. only increases every year at around 1.5 or 2% per year. So um, this is why no matter what happens, no matter what governments do, you know, all over, all over our history, gold continues to keep its monetary role just because of the fact that nobody can print gold on demand. So, nobody can expropriate the value of your gold by printing it. Uh, they can take the gold, that's a different story. But what made the gold money is that it is hard. And so, Bitcoin com- um, brings that property of gold uh, into the digital uh, monetary system of the internet. But it's even harder than gold because the supply of Bitcoin is strictly capped at 21 million, whereas the supply of gold is, for all practical intents and purposes, infinite, because we keep increasing, because we keep finding uh, deeper mines to dig, and we keep digging in new places, and we keep digging more efficiently. Gold is always increasing at 1% or 2% per year, but Bitcoin is going to stop increasing at all. It'll be uh, strictly scarce. So that's an extremely interesting property, which I discussed in detail about uh, Bitcoin.
0: Today, we don't have a gold standard, right? So it's something happened between when, you know, hard money was valued by people and banks. And now it's, you know, obviously something else is valued more. So how does how do all these properties of Bitcoin, um, you know, w- how will they be able to replace our current monetary system?
1: Well, it's not entirely true that we don't have a gold standard because, you know, the money that we have is issued by central banks that you use anywhere in the world. And these central banks themselves still... Keep a very significant uh, amount of gold in their reserves. Mm-hmm. So gold has not been completely demonetized. Gold is still money. It's still money for central banks. The central banks still keep it and uh, engage in uh, operations of buying it and selling it. Um, I don't. I don't think we can say that uh, uh, that uh, gold has uh, stopped being money. But you know, even if we look at uh, different. Uh, kinds of uh, money uh, within government money, if you look at uh, different types of government money, we see the same story. The better performing government monies, the ones that are sought all over the world, the the dollar, the euro, the Swiss franc, the British pound, they have relatively low uh, percentage increase in their supply. Whereas, uh, currencies like, say, the Zimbabwean dollar or uh, the the Venezuelan Bolivar and all of these other currencies are continuously increasing at a much faster rate. And as a result, they lose value and their citizens want to drop them and uh, their citizens look for alternatives in the form of the dollar and the euro. So you still find this property to always be there. The harder money is going to always be more desirable and it will hold value over time better. And the people who... their wealth and money that is not hard will just uh, lose uh, its value over time.
0: But currently what's happening, I mean, it seems to me people just prefer the harder money than their weak alternative. So they don't necessarily go for the hardest money. Even today, gold, you know, has many drawbacks. So what's in between, you know, that decision to say, well, I may not need the hardest available money to... Bitcoin being the de facto standard?
1: Well, I mean, you know, I'm not trying to convince people that they should use it and I'm not trying to sell uh, Bitcoin. You know, this is not the point of my book. Uh, I'm, not, uh, uh, I, I'm just describing economic reality in the sense of that, you know, whatever your choice is, the likely outcome of the fact that people can use different options now. And one of these options is strictly scarce the supply of which is never going to go beyond 21 million, is just going to mean that in the long run, more and more uh, the people who store their wealth in that thing will uh, will, will witness their wealth grow more and more. So, I mean, I think the hardness of the money itself is not really optional in the sense of, you know, if you don't like it, then you're immune from it. Because if you don't like it, others can use it, and then if others can use it, they will... Witness their wealth appreciate while yours remains stagnant, and so in real terms, you know they'll be able to purchase um, more things. They'll be able to save more for the future and invest more in the future, and so that becomes a disadvantage for those who don't use it. The important thing, I mean, look, it might well be the case that uh, Bitcoin does not take off in its popularity, that remains a fringe. Its popularity might drop quite significantly from where it is right now. Um, But I think the interesting thing is if you keep a very long-term perspective on this, you know, 10 years from now, 50 years from now, 100 years from now, most likely the Bitcoin network is going to continue to be operating exactly as it is operating right now. And it would have built a track record of 10, 20, 50, 100, whatever years of operating continuously. And so, you know, when you think about how much um more accessible it could become to people how many more people would have heard about it just because of the fact that it has survived for longer and longer periods it makes it likely that it's just going to continue to play a, an increasing role over time in the in the economy on the other hand you know this is this is the economic aspect of the hard money which I think is uh, is you can think of it as an economic reality that will impose itself so for instance uh, there were countries towards the end of the 19th century that tried to stay on a silver standard.
2: Mm -hmm. It
1: was suicide to do that because the value of silver just dropped and the value of gold kept on rising compared to silver. And so these countries were impoverishing themselves by holding on to a currency that was uh, depreciating like that. So this is the reality of um, the way the system, uh, the way monetary competition works. But I think the other thing that Bitcoin has going for it is that it's not just an alternative to central banks in terms of its monetary policy. It's also an alternative to central bank in the ability to process international payments, and this is this is this is really the operational strength of Bitcoin, uh, which you know is kind of ignored uh, by uh, uh, people, and it's sort of lost sometimes when people continue to think about. Uh, many of the other uh, buzzwords and hype that is associated with bitcoin but really fundamentally what bitcoin does is that you know if you want to send money today from the united states to china mm-hmm. your options are limited to a few currencies and one single international central banking system that's it you know no matter which bank you choose it's going to go through your central bank and the other country's central bank and it's one system that's practically functions under the uh, command of the U.S. central bank. So, you know, this is the only option that we have for sending money internationally. Um, Well, I guess you could, you know, send it with people or send it on donkeys. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, if you wanted to use any sort of uh, institutions uh, that utilize something uh, from 19th century technology onwards, you have to go through the government. Uh, banking monopoly central bank. So now we have an alternative where you can send money across the world online without having to uh, without having to go through the central banking system. And it's uh, it's it's an incredibly secure system. It's a system that you know within one hour you'll be able to get around six confirmations, and uh, with six confirmations you can be more certain of the finality of the transaction than pretty much any payment system or the current payment system would offer you in a month of uh, clearance. Um, so within an hour, you can perform the sorts of transactions that today take financial institutions days and maybe weeks to complete. That's what Bitcoin allows. And so we're seeing that effectively, uh, uh, a new, a new economy is growing around this monetary system. An economy based around Bitcoin, it's still quite marginal, it's still very small. It's still, you know, if you want to measure the value of all the Bitcoins outstanding, it's still around 0.1% of all the value of all the money, other kinds of money out there. So it's still quite tiny, but still, um, it's quite interesting that it is able to uh, function in this way, where people are able to send payments to one another all around the world. The monetary supply has proven itself to be very predictable, very um, reliably predictable. Predictable. We're not going to get a lot of changes in it. And uh, the uh, system works in terms of its security. Nobody has been able to uh, thwart the system security to pass through uh, transactions that don't work. And every day that goes by when Um, Bitcoin's monetary policy is still uh, functioning and it's still able to process payments is another day that it continues to prove itself in this regard. So um, it it is emerging as an alternative and you know my book is not making predictions about whether it's going to win or not or how the two are going to grow. But I think it's it's quite amazing to witness this hard money economy emerge online um, and how it's a central bank is going to compete and um, operate with the other central banks.
0: Well, it's definitely something very new in the history of money. I mean, I read many comments about your book where people said, it's the history of money, and then there's an added chapter about how Bitcoin continues that history and extrapolates it into the future. I also saw that in an interview where you said, And I quote here, the most important thing that Bitcoin offers is a new form of sound money outside the control of any authority or government in the world. And that is something very, very important for the world economy. And before you talked um, about, you know, the aspects of um, hard money or, or sound money versus, you know, money that's easy to inflate. You talked about some of the convenience, but what can it really do for the world economy as a whole?
1: Um, Okay, so this is obviously a huge question. Um, uh, Three chapters in my book are about this, and those are really my uh, three favorite chapters, which Mm -hmm. explain what, in my opinion, are the three main uh, benefits of having sound hard money versus having um, uh, easy funny money. So, um, okay, so first of all, the, the... the one that I find the most interesting, and this is really the root of my fascination with uh, Bitcoin, is the relationship between the kind of money and the, the time preference of society and of individuals. So the way that I see it, um, well, it's not the way that I see it. A lot of other economists have written and spoken about this. But time preference is uh, is a measure for how much people uh, discount the future compared to the present. Mm-hmm. So everybody prefers consumption or a a gratification in the present over the future. There's no question about it. I mean, if I told you, would you rather consume an apple today or in a year, you definitely choose it today. Or if I offered you a sum of money or I offered you a house, given the exact same reward between today and one year from now, everybody would rather go with the uh, reward today. Sure, But Uh, Because fundamentally what it comes down to is that we are not living infinitely uh, on this earth. We could die within this year. And, you know, our time is finite. We want to get the enjoyment, as much enjoyment into this time as we can. So it's completely normal and rational for everybody to have a positive time preference, meaning a time preference is greater than zero, that you do have a preference for the present over the future. However, how much that preference varies is uh what we describe as high time preference or low time preference so if you have a be- high time preference that means you f- you favor the future less you favor the present a lot more if you have a low time preference then the degree by which you favor the present is a little bit less and so in other words if the, the nomenclature can be a little bit confusing people always get them mixed up at the uh, at the beginning but the way to think of it is low time preference is future orientation. You think about the future a lot. High time preference is present orientation. You think about the present more. Okay? Mm-hmm. So, in um, you know the factors that affect... Time preference for me is one of the most important economic concepts. In fact, I would say it's the most important economic uh, concept for any individual to learn. If I could teach my students one thing, I always make sure to always teach them time preference in any class that I teach because I think it's really the most important thing they could learn Because you know, in economics, we teach about macroeconomics and dealings with governments and individuals, and we talk about microeconomic decisions between individuals. But the most important decision, the most important trade that you will ever perform with anybody, is the trade you will perform with your future self. You know, you trade with the rest of the world what five times a day, ten times a day, twenty times a day, but you trade with your future self infinite numbers of times, an infinite number of times per day. You know, if you decide to work today, you're working for your future self. If you decide to enjoy yourself, you're enjoying yourself today and not working for your future self. Mm -hmm. So with every decision you take, you're always weighing the future versus the present. Um, So the the, the ability of people to understand the long-term consequences of their actions comes from this process of beginning to appreciate time preference, and um, an economist called Hans Hermann Hoppe calls time preference, the lowering of time preference, he calls it what initiates the process of civilization, and I think it's an excellent way of understanding it, because what really allows us to build a civilization is when we as human beings stop thinking about our immediate needs. And instead start thinking of what is better for us in the long run.
0: Yeah, when we start saving, right, as as opposed to consuming everything immediately.
1: So you don't just get hungry and go and hunt and eat. No, before you get hungry, you have the foresight to think, I'm going to get hungry, so let me first build something to hunt with. Mm -hmm. And then that allows you to start hunting with a higher productivity. You then build something more advanced, so you keep accumulating capital. And that's really the process of human uh, civilization. It's capital accumulation and technological advancement, which go together, but necessary for them to happen is the lowering of time preference.
0: Mm-hmm. So Interesting.
1: Yeah. So for me, I think the concept of time preference is highly related to the kind of money that a society has. If a society has hard money, and we have many examples of societies that have had hard money. and generally, these are called golden eras, golden periods. It's no coincidence that you find the gold standard in most periods that are known as the golden era. Because under that kind of monetary system, money appreciates in value every year a tiny little bit. It's not enough to get you rich by just holding money, but it's enough for you to be able to save for your future from your work today.
0: Well, at least you don't lose it, right? When you have high inflation, you lose money without doing anything. So you have a higher reward to actually just spend it immediately and buy something that has a worth, as opposed to just being it, you know, worthless paper somewhere.
1: Precisely. So if imagine if uh, you lived in a society where the value of money appreciated every year by 3%. In 25 years, the money that you put in today will double in 25 years. If it drops by 3% every year, in 25 years, it'll drop by half. Mm-hmm. So you start working when you're 20 years old, and it makes a difference. If you start saving and you're losing 3% per year, You know why save for so that in 25 years you'll have half of it left? It makes no sense. Whereas if you're going to uh, be in a place where it depreciates by 3% per year, you'd save because in 25 years it'll be double the amount. So people are more likely to save when they have hard money they save and so they have their wealth stored in, they have some wealth stored in money and that appreciates over time and that acts as a person's um, safety nest, if you want. That's their. Uh, th- that's the money that they know they always have in case of a crisis or a problem. And then, you know, with that continuously appreciating over time and they are able to work more and produce more, they start accumulating capital for investment, you know, other than the money that they have, which is, enough to let's say last them through six months if they weren't able to work through six months or something like that, or one year, or whatever emergency expenses they might imagine. Once you have beyond that, and once your savings are appreciated beyond that, you start taking risk with your capital. So in a sound money economy, there's a separation between the function of serving and the function of risk taking and investment. And that's a healthy thing. You know, mm-hmm. you need your savings to be just the thing that you can be um, safe that in, in which you can safely store value which people they don't really have because you have to gamble with everything and you never know what thing might blow up and what uh, you know they told you houses are a good store of value but then they might uh, drop or whatever so money is the one thing that just acts as the store of value that is predictable that contains the least risk and also offers the least reward mm-hmm. investments then allow you to take more risk and more reward Yep, and I think uh, you know, that sort of skewing of people's decision-making towards consumption and towards few, uh, towards present orientation, um, obviously, the first effect of it is that people move away from saving, so then they start consuming more and more. And economically, this is quite destructive because this is opposite of the process of civilization. What you're doing is you're destroying capitalism. And you see it as in how everybody today is indebted. You know, individuals, Um, governments, uh, organizations, everybody is indebted. Everybody is in debt because it makes more sense to take on debt than to accumulate uh, savings. And I think it also affects the culture of a society, and I think it also affects the innovativeness of a society. And if you look at the 19th century under the gold standard, I I provide some evidence of how there were more innovations uh, around that time than now. But also, I think, also, if you think about art, uh, that's a very interesting way of comparing it, you know. Uh, Today, in the 20th century, we find that the art that is produced has no conception of beauty and very little craft or work or effort goes into it. Hmm. Uh, Artists don't have the time preference that is necessary to spend years working on learning their craft and then working on perfecting their masterpieces. So if you look at some of the most um well-known art pieces of the 20th century you know you see things that a 15 year old could pull off you know you could give it to a 15 year old and tell do this and in about a day's work he could pull it off with no training no particularly good important uh, good uh, training in uh, art if you look at the time of the gold standard you know and you look at some of the best artwork that was produced there you could not find the 15 year old anywhere who could produce it in a day i mean I quote quote Michelangelo uh, in a poem he wrote about what he had to endure in order to uh, complete the Sistine chapel. He spent four years hanging from the ceiling of the chapel and drawing it and had an enormous amount of health problems and breathing problems because of it. But that's what it takes to create something that would last for hundreds of years. It takes years of effort and dedication and then um, more and more hard work. But... That sort of thing requires a low time preference mm-hmm. I and mean, it's uh, it's not entirely coincidental that we like these things today
0: it's It's interesting that you bring up Michelangelo just today. I read somewhere that uh, Michelangelo was actually the richest artist of the Renaissance, and that would totally match with what you're saying right I mean yeah. he obviously had uh, his savings so he could focus on the long game
1: yes. Yeah. Exactly. He could afford to go and spend four years, um, you know, uh, hurting his health to, to do something that would last hundreds of years because everything else was taken care of in his uh, life.
0: I understand how, how it makes sense that if somebody has savings, if somebody knows that they will be secure in the future, that they can invest more, let's say, in themselves today. What are other things that enable this more positive time preference?
1: Um. So there are a lot of factors that go into time preference security is another major one so if you live in a place where you are highly insecure in your life and property you're highly likely to become more present oriented than future oriented As um, the threat of violence increases around you you become more uh, uh, you develop a higher time preference um, I mean any anything that uh, would, Tend towards increasing cooperation between human beings and um, increasing capital accumulation would lead to a lower time preference. In turn, a lower time preference would lead to those things and would help bring those things about.
0: You're an Austrian economist. Yeah. What does that have to do with the book?
1: It has everything to do with the book. <laughs> the book is, uh, is what happens when you read a lot of Austrian economics and then discover Bitcoin and try and apply what you learned reading those old Austrian books to uh, this new crazy technology.
0: Let's take a quick break for a message from our sponsors. This episode has support from no official sponsor, but from my very own The Blockchain and Us newsletter. Get an email from me every two weeks with a very short summary of new podcast episodes so you can immediately pick those interviews you'd like to listen to. To stay up to date, just visit www.theblockchainandus.com and sign up today. Austrian economics and Bitcoin often go together. But what are the most, um, maybe the overlapping um, concepts, why, why that is so?
1: Austrian economics is a sort of philosophical um, treatment of how human beings uh, act. It's, 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 it's the study of human action. Mm-hmm. It's the study of how human beings act uh, with respect to material resources and the decisions that they take and what the implications of it are. And so um, once you look into these things and study them well, you get to you really appreciate and understand that the individualist and uh, liberal perspective in the classical sense of the word liberal, which is that the only way that an individual can uh, um, you know uh, secure what is best for them is if they have the freedom to choose, make their own choices, mm-hmm. and that there's no chance that an outsider could uh, impose restrictions on you that will improve your choices or make your uh, make your economic reality better. And that's why it's in general against any kind of government intervention in the economy. And that's why it's, uh, you know, people like to think of Austrian economists as being ideological. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, for us, it's them who are ideological. (laughs) (laughs) There's no reason why I should get the ability to put a gun to your head and tell you don't do this or do that. And there's no reason why you should have this. Mm -hmm. So the Austrians recognize that and recognize that, you know, the the best outcome for you and me is if we both live literally, in the sense of uh, uh, you conduct all of your market dealings as you please, and I conduct as, all my market dealings as I please. So, uh, so from so so from this perspective, any kind of government intervention in money is also destructive and counterproductive. So, their definition of sound money is money that is f- chosen freely on the market. They generally almost always refer to sound money as gold and gold as sound money. And that's, uh, that's understandable because for the 150-year period from about 1860 until 2010, gold really was the only sound money in the sense of the only monetary choice of the market. Mm-hmm. But the, the reason is not because it's just gold or that it has to be gold. You know, in many other times it was silver. It could be any other kind of money, as long as it is chosen freely on the market. The distinction is that it is money whose value is determined on the market because people voluntarily pay for it, what, uh, what they value it has, as opposed to unsound money or easy money, mm-hmm. which is money that has to have coercion involved in getting it accepted. You know, somebody puts a gun to your head and tells you you have to use this. That's bad money. And then when bad money is utilized, all sorts of economic problems happen. So Bitcoin really comes from that kind of perspective in a sense of the money supply is built to be completely hard. And the fact that Bitcoin has gained any kind of economic value, that people are willing to pay money for it, is really the most astonishing thing about it.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And um, for me, as an Austrian economist, it's the thing that I thought would be... uh, The hardest for Bitcoin that I would think, I mean, I only knew about Bitcoin after it was already trading, but uh, I mean, in retrospect, this would be the hardest thing. I could have imagined somebody had built it, but to get to a point that somebody pays for it, any amount of money, for it to have a market value is really the most astonishing achievement, I think, of uh, Bitcoin, still is.
0: Mm -hmm. Why is that so hard to pull off?
1: um because you know it's uh, it's it's still zeros and ones at the end of the day and um i mean i i only heard about bitcoin from the perspective of uh, somebody who was already interested in hard money so coming at it from that perspective mm-hmm. it, it really was very hard to convince me that you could build something digital that is that have the same reliable scarcity that gold has or that is even better than that because you know what if it gets hacked what if somebody? Changes the supply. What if the government locks the people behind it up? What if, what if, what if there are a million different scenarios you could think of for why it wouldn't work? Mm-hmm. And it really took me years, even after it worked, it took me years to come around to the idea that, yeah, maybe it does work. Maybe it could work. And um, it, it, it still amazes me that it has and it does. And, and, you know, you, you no matter how much time you spend trying to study how it works, it's still a little It's still
0: puzzling. It took you years to to actually uh, be on board with Bitcoin. What was there one specific argument that won you over?
1: Um, I would say it wasn't really arguments because you know Bitcoin doesn't argue; it just is, (laughs) Mm -hmm. and you know you you adjust your own uh, beliefs onto it. Or or was
0: there maybe an experience you know where that, that tipped it for you?
1: I mean, if you think about it, the insanity of it is that this thing is just doing the same thing that it has been doing from day one. Mm -hmm. And people are just uh, freaking out about it and changing their mind about it. And it just doesn't even have any conception of what they want. But it's doing the perfectly rational thing to keep winning people over. But uh, for me, the first thing was, okay, I'd heard about it. I can't even remember when I first heard of it. 2009 or 2010. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, okay, interesting. They're trying to make something like gold. I don't think it'll work. And, you know, just dismissed it. And then I keep hearing about it. And I keep, you know, the more you hear about it, the more you start thinking for why it won't work. Eventually, I just, uh, I thought, you know, it's never going to catch on in terms of value. Or if it does, government will shut it down. Or will, even if there's nobody to shut it down, they'll, They'll just pick a bunch of people anywhere who are uh, high profile and associated with it and then throw them in jail.
0: Which has happened with some of the early entrepreneurs in the space.
1: Exactly. So this really was the uh, wake up moment for me or the incident was when these things started to happen more and more. And yet Bitcoin continued to grow in spite of all these things. That was really the shocking thing about it. Hmm. So, you know, I thought there's no way it's going to get to a dollar uh each you know there's no way that each one of these things would get to a dollar and then i saw it get to a dollar and i thought okay you know mm-hmm. it's a crazy bubble it just kept on growing and growing and growing and growing and then the second thing that i had was uh, there's no way this would be any more than just uh, either is going to be used for drugs and then once they start clamping down on these people then that'll kill it so when the Silk Road website got busted or supposedly the guy who supposedly ran the so-called website got busted and the number of transactions on the network did not collapse and the number of uh Mm -hmm. and the price in fact got rallying as the usage of the network that's when i realized okay now, this thing is uh, more serious than uh, I give it credit for. Mm-hmm.
0: Do you think the fact that nobody was able to kill Bitcoin, do you think that has to do with the strength of the protocol or maybe just with um, those people who could have stopped it underestimating its power?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it would have been pretty trivial if, uh, if you had a few million dollars in 2010 Mm-hmm. In 2009, I mean, it could have been done with a few computers maybe. You could have you, you could have taken the original chain and created many, many kinds of uh, double-spend and 51% attack for relatively cheap prices, for relatively cheap mm-hmm. In
2: 2009,
1: 10, 11, even 12, um, it was still largely doable. By 2013 is when – that's another thing that really uh, – uh, when I talk about why I started taking Bitcoin seriously, the drug bust and also the explosion—the explosion of the hash rate in 2013 and 14—and just how much more costly attacking the network became. Once these things, um, once the hash rate really increased so much, it's, it's now um, it's now very very hard to imagine somebody attacking it. Not just because the cost is high, but because you know, the cost is not even uh, theoretically easy to think of because if somebody wanted to start uh, producing miners to manipulate the hash rate, you know, there's nothing stopping others from producing more miners mm-hmm. and to increase the hash rate as they go along as well. So it's it's like chasing, uh, um, you know, chasing the 51% of Bitcoin hash rate, I think is just becoming increasingly impossible with every, every day. So yeah, it's, it's, uh, it could have been stopped, but I think it's, uh, um, it, it, it's, uh, it, it, it's a testament to how interesting this thing is, that all of the people who uh, heard about it at an early stage were inclined to use it and, uh, be- and benefit from it rather than attack it.
0: Cool. Are there Austrians in your circles or peers of yours that um, think Bitcoin is a bad idea?
1: Um, yes, uh, there are quite a few. So, for instance, uh, Peter Schiff is a famous uh, Australian economist. He's, uh, he's, not, he's not very keen on Bitcoin. Although he would accept Bitcoin on his own website.
0: He, he's keen on gold, I think. So the hard money argument still holds there. But yeah, I don't think he's a Bitcoin fan. But maybe more in academia, you know, um, because you're also a professor. Sometimes I'm sure you go to conferences and, you know, people may say, well, we saw you wrote this Bitcoin book, uh, but they come up with all kinds of arguments why that may be a bad idea. I mean, what are the... Yeah,
1: but don't really, I don't really hang out with the economists. I'm, uh, you know, I, I'm a bit of an outcast within the
2: profession
1: mm. uh, and self-chosen outcast, if you want. Because I can't just go to these conferences and sit with the no-coiners and discuss uh, their uh, kind of research and academic stuff that they do. It's completely uninteresting to me, to be honest, most of it, the vast majority of it. So generally, you know, the economists that I deal with are um, quite open-minded. So, you know, I wouldn't say everybody's crazy about Bitcoin, but uh, um, some are pro, some are indifferent. Some are interested, but don't know enough. And I think that's the majority of uh, the people that I know. They're interested in finding out about it, but they just don't know enough. Because it it takes years to be able to really understand what's going on with Bitcoin. It's not an easy thing to figure out.
0: Let's Let's say a student or somebody else who's interested in learning more about what Bitcoin can do. How should they go about exactly that, about understanding its implications?
1: Well, obviously I'm going to suggest that they read my book. uh, (laughs) Well,
0: hopefully they will, but besides that.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is sort of a given, so yeah, buy my book. (laughs) No, I mean, more importantly than reading my book, obviously, the first place with which I begin is the uh, Satoshi Nakamoto's uh, white paper. Yeah. It's, you know, it's it's by no means a religious text. It's by no means (laughs) infallible. In fact, uh, a guy called David Harding has written an entire article about mistakes that are in uh, the white paper it's it's uh, it's not an infallible uh, holy document and we shouldn't read that but it's a great place to start because it's a great place to get your mind into the right frame of understanding what was going on what was the problem that he was uh, tackling why did he try and do it what was the this? to me if you don't understand the computer science that is there you know at least to start understanding what terms you need to understand so from then on, I'd recommend uh, just digging into um, the Bitcoin Wiki is a very good resource, mm-hmm. um, and, and trying to understand the technical, aspects of it, of uh, you know the the how the cryptography works, the hashing, um, the distributed networks, um, and you know I think obviously from my perspective, the economics is where I would uh, offer the uh, Where I think is the why of economics. Mm -hmm. The why of Bitcoin is economics. And for that, you know, you can see my book and my talks. And uh, I also recommend uh, very strongly the Satoshi Nakamoto Institute. Mm -hmm. Uh, They have an archive of all of Satoshi's writings as well as a lot of writings that are uh, quite relevant to uh, Bitcoin. And I think if you read their uh, articles, you get a very good uh, idea of what's going on.
0: Cool. And we can put all these links in the in the show notes of this um, of this episode. Um, I've seen there is this graph with gold on one side, all the gold in the world, and then on the other side, very small, all the bitcoins in the world. And that somehow implies that at some point Bitcoin could maybe you know grab a lot of that market share, if not replace, gold as the de facto standard for hard money. Um, in your view, what would need to happen for Bitcoin to replace all the gold in the world?
1: Well, I, I doubt that Bitcoin would ever completely replace uh, the gold, or I don't know, ever is a very big word. But, uh, you know, gold. gold's uh, economic value is not just monetary, but also gold's monetary value is strongly culturally almost psychologically linked to its uh, its its its, uh, it's it's ornamental role as jewelry so you know people want to wear gold and people want to give gold as a dowry all over the world this tradition continues to persist it's not easy to get people to um, get over hundreds or thousands of years of culture and accumulated wealth in a so I think gold is going to continue to remain uh, valuable, but whether it could, and you know, the fact that you can wear it and show it off, I think might continue to uh, keep its, uh, might continue to help it keep its monetary role. Mm-hmm. But, uh, so I wouldn't really say it's gold versus Bitcoin because mm-hmm. it's really gold and Bitcoin as the hardest two monies versus the other kinds of money that we have in the world. So I, I wouldn't really know um, what, uh, How to think of that. But I would say, you know, Bitcoin just needs to effectively continue to survive. And that's it. If Bitcoin is around 10 years from now and nothing drastic has happened and changed with it, that's just going to make it 10 times as attractive uh, as a store of value as it is now. And if it around for another 50 years, That's another uh, different uh, story.
0: Yeah, interesting. Let's assume we'd have a Bitcoin standard at some point. Mm -hmm. What is maybe one result of this that is hard to understand for people currently? Mm.
1: I think think people would start uh, finding better music come out.
0: Music, you mean?
1: Yeah.
0: What's that have to do with it?
1: Time preference. You're gonna get musicians who learn how to sing and play <laughs> instruments again.
0: What else? Maybe what's what's the thing that you know will surprise people very much? Of course, it would be very nice if we have much more better art, better music. Yeah. But what is maybe like a thing also in society in ways we interact?
1: Yeah, I think well, chapter. So I focused on your initial question of chapter five, but then there's chapter seven on individual freedom. I think if we uh, if more and more of the world economy. Um, runs on money that is free of government control, then I think we're going to increase the ability of individuals to be free quite significantly all over the world. Mm -hmm. Um, And the control of government over economic activity and over personal decisions and personal rights, I would see it declining drastically. Cool. So that might be uh, good news.
0: Okay, great. I'm safe. Did you always want to be a professor? (laughs)
1: <laughs> no, of course not. Who grows up wanted to be a professor? I wanted to be a football player. I should have been at the World Cup right now. But you know, I failed in life, so we all have to find a plan B.
0: Plan B was a professor, it's still pretty good. How, how yeah. did you be, how did you get into this uh, into this field?
1: Uh I don't know. I took a whole bunch of decisions and <laughs> here I am. <laughs>
0: Yeah. I mean, let's say you weren't a professor, let's say you weren't in academia. Mm-hmm. What would you like to be doing?
1: Yeah, I, I, I think I genuinely mean it uh, a football player. I think I uh, would have really enjoyed doing that at least for an early period of my life and then maybe moved on to something else. Um, it's, uh, I, when I was young, we lived for two years in uh, Rio de Janeiro in Brazil. Mm-hmm. So as a six to eight year old kid, I was playing football in Brazil. And learning to love football from Brazilians, and so I've, uh, kept this obsession with uh, the game the Brazilians have. But I'm nowhere near as good as uh, most Brazilians, unfortunately. So I just watch.
0: Maybe, maybe another life. Who knows? Yeah. Um, <laughs> if you if you look back at uh, you know decisions that you made, maybe that led you to where you are today. Are there certain things that you do differently?
1: No, not really. I'm not the sort of person who likes to look back. Well. I used to always say that that I'm not the sort of person who likes to look back until I tried uh, living without sugar and started seeing the effects that uh, sugar has on my body. And then I realized, yeah, no, if I could, I'd go back to the day that I was born and would change the way that I've been uh, eating all my life. And I think my life would have been completely different.
0: Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah, I mean, that's a whole other topic. I mean, many people said... Ask about diet. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, but if we did that, I'm sure that would be another hour of very interesting conversation. <laughs> um, what's next for you, Safe?
1: Um Next, I think I might, uh, I'm, I, I think I want to start writing uh, another uh, book, but it will be probably a, a more general uh, economics textbook. I'd like to write something like that. Um, that's really what I think I have in mind for the next couple of years.
0: Mm-hmm. More more general economics, I mean, what, what would be the angle there?
1: Um, it's a textbook or a book, I mean, I would want it to be a book that anybody can pick up and read and learn all of the most important concepts in economics and also a book that could be taught at the university to teach, say, two or three courses uh, in economics.
0: Cool. There's one thing that I wanted to ask earlier, which which I didn't was, in your view, why would a Bitcoin standard be a bad idea?
1: Um, you know, the, the, some things are beyond good and bad. It's not. I'm not here uh, trying to sell you uh, something. I'm describing an economic phenomenon that is emerging, and so mm-hmm. uh, you know, I, 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 it's. But still, what are what are
0: some of the counter arguments? you know, to to the points that you're making. If you you put yourself in the shoes of somebody criticizing your book.
1: The good and the bad comes from... The good and the bad is not the technology. The good and the bad is what people make of it. So what we're seeing here is just a new form of technology emerging that's going to allow us to have our, uh, you know, to to do the job of a central bank online. Anybody can log online and uh, replace their central bank effectively. Um, now, whether you think that's a good thing or a bad thing is really an orthogonal question. I think this is, uh, you know, this is, this is a, this is a thing that I probably don't share with some of the, uh, with, with many people in the Bitcoin space, which is, you know, I, I'm not interested in evangelism and I don't want to try and sell this to people because, you know, bad things can happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, people can lose their private keys and they could lose their money. People could uh, um, you know, the, there will be problems there. The important thing is to just, uh, for me, as just to talk to, to discuss the economics of it and try and think about the economics of it. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I, I, I'm I'm not really sure what I could say, but I guess that that issue of the private keys is is one major, uh, one major problem and drawback. The fact mm-hmm. is that you know, if it's lost, it's lost, and there's uh, there's no way to bring it back. That's a major issue with uh, Bitcoin that people need to be aware of. It's not like your local checking account, where if you make uh, a mistake in payment, then you can just call them and they'll uh, reinstate it.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely something uh, for many people to get used to—to to be so much in charge of 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 their money and their wealth. Yeah. Um, so so far, what kind of reactions are you getting to the book?
1: Um, well, you know, all of the range that you would expect. Um, from depending on people's perspectives on Bitcoin, so as you can imagine, Bitcoiners are ecstatic about it, but the no coiners are not very ecstatic about it. But fundamentally, it doesn't really matter. I mean, I don't really, uh, I I don't base my happiness on the reactions of others. The point of this book is for people to think about it, and uh, I, I'm I'm not going to uh, give too much thought to uh, what people think initially. Now, I'm hopeful that this book will. Uh, uh, stand the test of time that's the real test uh, so it's, it's a little too early to say it's been uh, it's, a, it's a good book or a bad book I think well, hopefully uh, 5 or 10 years from now somebody's still asking that question the the fact that people are still talking about it in 5 or 10 years is, uh, is all that I think matters
0: mm-hmm. cool thanks a lot for explaining your work and some of the key concepts of the book and for taking time today for this interview.
1: Thank you very much, Manuel. It was a pleasure.
0: Thanks so much for joining us today. More info on our guests and our sponsors is in the show notes of this episode and on the podcast website, theblockchainandus.com. To help people find this podcast, it's important that you download, subscribe, and give it a top rating and review on iTunes or on the podcast platform of your choice. I'm Manuel Staggers, and I thank you very much for listening.